Well, I hope you guys are experiencing the presence of Christ this Advent season as week by week we get a little bit closer. And I was talking to a group of, uh, group of folks, I think it was maybe small group, life group, I don't remember, we were talking about Christmas traditions. Now, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who have, like, the ride-or-die Christmas traditions. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we always go to Grandma's house, and we always eat beer rocks, and we always play Mexican train dominoes. Don't you even suggest Uno, Susan, right? They're the, I absolutely have these traditions. And then there's the other kind of family that, like, yeah, we kind of do this, or we kind of do that. Like, it doesn't really matter as long as we're together kind of folks, Right? Anybody understand? Where do you fall on this, this spectrum? Are you like a absolutely we do the same thing every year? Or do you kind of, we'll see what happens? Huh? I would like you to know second service will answer my questions. And y'all just stare at me blank faced, okay? Well, the thing is, is that Tommy and I probably fall somewhere in between. And I don't know why that is. We have a few things that we always, always, always do. But then everything else is kind of up for grabs, right? So maybe it's because, like, we've been pastors most of our married life. And our entire holiday season falls upon, depends upon what day of the week Christmas is on. <laughs> like my, my world revolves around that, right? And same with my parents, because he's a preacher. And so we're always trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do together and whatever. And we have moved lots of times in our short married life, right? Five times, probably nothing compared to some of you who have moved way more. But every place we've lived has been a little bit different. And when we lived overseas, the whole thing was, the question that we had to ask was, how do we make this like our traditions, like things that we really love in a completely different context, right? And so we decided we were going to have stockings, like always. We were going to make cinnamon rolls, like always. But instead of going to the movies... We were going to go to Rome. <laughs> kind of the same. Kind of close, right? Um, now, Rome is one of those places that people talk about almost as if it's not real. Like, kind of like how you, pa like Paris, like, my dream in life is to go to Paris. And my dream in life is to go to, it's one of those places that people talk about almost like it's not even real. But let me tell you, Rome is even cooler than they tell you it is. Because it's, history is just like, slapping you in the face every time you walk around the corner, right? It's just so remarkable. And so the first day we get there, we walk, my parents are there and my brother, and, and we walk and we go see the Colosseum, which, oh, it's like amazing. It's this big, like, arena, and it's um, been restored in part, and it's just incredibly intact, and you can walk in, and they explain things to you, and some of it's really amazing and fascinating, and then other things are, like, heart-wrenching. They're like, this is where the lions popped out to eat the Christians. And you're like, oh, how nice what? Right? It was really, really intense, right? And so you go from that, you see the Colosseum, and it's so beautiful and just like takes your breath away. And then you walk down the street just a little bit to a place called the Roman Forum, right? And there's a few archways here and there and like some, some columns, but it's not nearly as impressive. And then you look down at the ground and you see what looks like arranged rocks, okay? They're all kind of the same color, but they're all on the ground. Like, they're kind of laid out in the form of an archway. And you think they're just a pile of rocks, but then you look closely and you realize it's rubble. It's all rubble. It's pieces of buildings that once were. It's kind of bittersweet and a little bit pathetic. Because, like, this isn't an archway, but here, look, we're going to kind of lay it out like one so you know what it looks like. So something magnificent is reduced to a pile of rocks. And so my dad, he goes into one of the tourist shops, and he gets this book where if you look at the page, it shows you a pile of rocks. And then you turn the page, and it shows you what used to be there, what once was. It's incredible. The difference is striking. What once 
was was so symbolic of might and of power, and it's now a pitiful arrangement of rocks on the ground. What once was is no longer. It's been reduced to rubble. Now, rubble. It seems like a strange topic for Advent, particularly this third Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of joy, because what is rubble? It is a mess. It's disarray. It's destruction. It's disappointment. It's a remnant of once was that is beyond recognition. So what does God, the God of Advent, have to say about rubble? So turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 61. It's our text this morning. As I said, I'm going to find it. It's kind of like in the middle and then go right a little, kind of. So as I said a couple weeks ago, preaching from Isaiah is a really challenging task because it's a lengthy book and interwoven into it is every major theme of the story of God and every text seems to be doing a thousand things at once. And so when the lectionary says, hey, Stephanie, you have to preach Isaiah, I just go to my office and I cry off and on throughout the week because I can't figure out what to do because it's so, it's so powerful. And so Isaiah, it is a book that cannot be tamed. It will not be minimized, and it will not be reduced to a book of predictions. It had a word for the people of God then. It had a word for the people in Jesus' time. And today, it has a word for us as well. And so before we read the text together, let's be reminded of who is listening, who this was talking to the first time around. It was, of course, as always, the answer to that question, Israel. Because after spending decades in exile because of their disobedience, they've returned to their homeland and find themselves surrounded by, you guessed it, rubble. The city is in shambles, of course. The walls have fallen, not one stone upon the other. And worst of all, the temple is devastated. It is literal rubble, people. But also spiritual rubble. As they are forced to look at the unrecognizable remnants of their former life, their former glory, and behold, with wide eyes wide open, the consequences of their sin and their rebellion. And it is painful to acknowledge, to see ourselves clearly, right? Like hashtag no filter. It's hard to see ourselves in that way. Now time out for a second here. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, so if this is a repeat for you, that's fine. But is it odd to anybody else that so many, especially if you've been following the Advent texts as we've been reading them throughout the, this season, that so many of the Advent texts seem to revolve around one of two things. Uh, the people in exile or coping with its aftermath, or the temple in ruins, and usually both. Why? Like, it is not cheery, and it is seemingly uh, not hopeful at all. It's dark, and it's not good reading before bedtime at all. But what we must realize is that for Israel, this time in exile and the subsequent, like, aftershocks of living in the piles of rubble and their devastated homeland was a time of tension-filled waiting a time where they didn't know and they did not understand what God was actually up to. A time when they found themselves surrounded by rubble. And to find themselves surrounded, not just by any old rubble, but the rubble of the temple, it was like ugh, a sword in the heart. Not because it was such a super cool building, but because it was the physical place where the spirit of God dwelt. And in many ways, it was the place where the realm of heaven and earth intersected where God was breaking into the world. And so the question for the exiled people of God is where, uh, where are you, God? 
Where is the presence of God? Have we been abandoned in this? How and when are you going to break through to us again? And in light of this mess, by the way, um, who are we and what are we supposed to be doing? Now, these questions are still very, very pressing to us as well as we wait for God once again this Advent season because we too find ourselves surrounded by rubble, by broken down hopes and expectations, by by questions without answers and futures that often can seem really uncertain. As I interact with you guys throughout the week, I hear about your rubble about the piles of rocks in your own life, the rubble that is in disarray that now seems to be unrecognizable. Like the painful challenge of learning how to parent your adult children and worrying about their choices over which you have no control. Or the regrets about choices that were made in the past and are now bearing toxic fruit in your family. Or the abuse and this mistreatment revealed. Or teenagers running amok, because y'all run amok, right? You do. Finances in a state, business conundrums that don't seem to have like a black or white answer, or illness that just comes out of nowhere. Y'all got some rubble, but so do I. The insecurity and the fear in my own heart, that paradoxical pride and yet simultaneous feelings of inadequacy, the anger that flares up so quickly, and The doubts and the questions I have about, God, uh, what are you doing when the burden of your hurt is so great? And so I, too, like you, sit in a circle of rubble and try as I might to arrange it nicely. We have to name it for what it is. It's rubble. Unavoidable signs of our brokenness, of our inability to heal ourselves. And yet... There's always a yet. There is a word for us today. As there was a word for ancient Israel sitting in the rubble of their toppled temple, a word to them as they wondered, where is God? Is God coming? Are we alone in figuring out this mess? So too, there is a word for you. So let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Isaiah chapter 61, starting in verse 1. It says this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise Instead of a faint spirit, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Skipping to verse 8, it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. 
I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots and as a garden causes what is sown in it, in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this is a text of contrast, right? Good news instead of bad, healing instead of brokenness, liberty instead of captivity, release instead of prison, favor instead of rejection and despair, comfort over mourning, garland instead of ashes, gladness over mourning, praise instead of despair. It's black and white, day and night. It's like bundling up for a cold, blustery day with your boots and your jacket, only to find yourself walking out, blinking into the sun. It's bracing for impact and watching in disbelief as the oncoming car turns at the last second. It's preparing your heart for the blow and then hearing the doctor say, it's not terminal after all. It's anticipating a lifelong sentence only to receive a pardon. It is expecting the worst and receiving God's best. It is expecting the worst and receiving God's best, not because we deserve it, but because God is good. Not because we have anything of merit, but because God is for us. Because God knows all about the rubble and he sees a way out a way to restoration and newness. And so the author tries to find imagery to help describe this radical change wrought in the people of God through the faithfulness of God. And he chooses the image of the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. Now, this isn't some random illustration he picks because he has an affinity for trees. Because back in Isaiah chapter 1, the author had used that exact same imagery to say a totally different thing. In one chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 30, it says this. It says, the, those who persist in rebellion and sin, he says, you will be like an oak that withers, a garden without water. Now, this last, last spring, we had our trees trimmed by D&D Trimming. It's Jason Tyndall's uh, company. And um, we have 15 trees on our incredibly small property. So there's bound to be some issues, right? So I thought in my mind they were going to come in and they were going to trim it up, right? Just snip, 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 like a haircut, more or less, right? So imagine my surprise when I look out and entire trees are being felled in my yard. Because I look at that tree and I'm like, it's got green leaves. It's fine. No worries, right? So I go outside and I go and I look at the stump before they ground it down. And oh my goodness, right in the very center of the stump is rock. Right at the core, and that's not my tree, that's just an example tree, okay? Uh, at the core of the stump, just looking at the tree, I never would have known. It was all leafy and green like all the other ones, but apparently Jason is like a tree whisperer. And he like, what, you say you're sick inside? Okay, right? And so in order to preserve the health of the whole, they had to chop it down. And that was the state of Israel. 
a sickly tree, a sick oak, rotting from the inside out because of their rebellion. Their sin sickness was eating away at their core, weak and flimsy because they had gone their own way, not mighty like an oak should be, right? And so what changed in 60 chapters, from chapter 1 to chapter 61, what changed? How'd they go from being a withering, sickly little oak tree to a mighty oak of righteousness? What changed? God broke in. God broke in right into their rubble, the rubble of their faithlessness and their disobedience. God broke in, and he declared it to be the day of the Lord's favor. Now, the day of the Lord's favor, it's not like a special holiday. It's not like everybody gets a day off work and we throw a barbecue type thing, okay? The day of the Lord has its roots in the Old Testament and the practice of the year of Jubilee. Now, in the year of Jubilee, it was every 50 years, and what was supposed to happen during that year is that every slave was to be set free. Every ancient uh, ancestral lands were to be returned to the original family. It was like the year of the clean slate. Now, wouldn't that be nice, right? Debts wiped out, you know, everything. The year of the clean slate. Now, it was God's command because he wanted to, to reflect the justice of God's kingdom, but it was never actually practiced in Israel. Why? Because we all want to be set free, And we all want to regain our land, but nobody actually wants to be the one forking it back over, right? And so in our text, the Spirit of the Lord has declared to the servant that this is the day of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, the year of the clean slate. But not merely in the old way that they've understood, but in a completely new, transformative way. Not just the return with some property, but with full salvation, rescue and redemption, a declaration once and for all that God is for you. God has intentions for you that are good. Now, this is both the best of news and the worst of news. It's the worst of news for the sickly oak. For those who are persistent in their rebellion and their self-serving agenda, it is the worst of news for those who are frantically and frenetically trying to restack and rearrange their rubble to build their own kingdom. It is the worst news, a day of vengeance, in fact, for those unwilling to repent, to turn away from their sin and turn toward God. But it is the best of news for those overwhelmed by the rubble and they see no way to restoration. It is the best of news who those in full surrender cry out for mercy, knowing fully well they don't deserve it. It is the best of news for those who are longing for healing and freedom, release from all that has made them slaves in body and spirit. The coming day of the Lord is good news for those who are willing to wait in their rubble, not pridefully rearranging the chaos, but calmly awaiting the word of the Lord. It is the best news for those who are ready and willing to amend their lives, to be in congruence with the way of the king, those ready to rebuild and repair and restore, strengthened and empowered by God himself. And so it is here 
amidst the rubble, yes, but with hands outstretched to the Lord in a posture of humble need with all of the cards of our sin and our hurt out on the table, holding nothing back with all of our wounds exposed and our doubts uncovered. It is here that we find ourselves surprised as we are awash with joy, overcome with joy, a divine paradox. It is here that we find that our ashes have been replaced with garlands of praise, that our mourning has given way to oil of gladness, and that the chains of our captivity have fallen from our wrist, and the bleeding wounds in our spirit have been bound up. But it is only in this posture of of openness in which our brokenness and our sin is laid bare, that we are able to experience the healing ministry of the Spirit. It is only in this posture that we are strengthened and we are empowered for the task ahead, the rebuilding and the repairing of the rubble around us, because there's work to do, right? And it is only in this posture of painful exposure that the light can shine through the cracks of our sin and our brokenness to bring us out of darkness and into God's glorious light. It is only in this posture of humility that we are able to receive the transformative joy of God. So, can you hear the word of the Lord once again, but this time imagining not some ancient people sitting amongst literal and spiritual rubble in Israel, but instead imagine yourself surrounded by your own rubble of your doubt and your fear, your regret, your sin, your sickness, your hurt, your betrayal and your loss and your despair and your trauma and your anxiety and oh, your anger. I want you to hear the word of the Lord amidst your rubble. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of the clean slate the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort you who mourn, to provide for you who mourn in Zion, to give you a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. You will be called an oak of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. You shall build up the ancient ruins. You shall raise up the former devastations. You shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For far too long, we have expected the worst, but God has extended to us his best, Jesus. In Jesus, the day of the Lord, The day of salvation, the day of the clean slate has arrived. So will we receive it as good news 
Or like the sickly oaks, will we persist in our rebellion and our sin, futilely trying to rearrange the rubble? Or will we, with hands outstretched in humility, turn to Jesus and welcome the day of the Lord? Welcome that piercing, penetrating, purifying light. Because it is only then, it is only then when we are available that we can receive the joy of the Lord. Rooted not in circumstance, because remember we got some rubble, but rooted in the unshakable foundation of God's faithfulness. And only then are we empowered by the God who comes to us in Jesus. Will we have the strength and the endurance to look at that rubble, both in our life and in the world, and scoff? Not because the rubble isn't real, but because God resurrects. Not because the rubble isn't painful and it's not heavy and it's not scary, but because God is with us. God, in Emmanuel, is with us. And so, in full hope and trust, fueled by joy, we build up the ancient ruins. We raise up the former devastations, we shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations, because the rubble is no match for a God with us people. And so I will sing for joy in God. I will explode in praise from deep in my soul, for he has dressed me in a suit of salvation. He outfitted me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom who puts on a tuxedo and a bride a jeweled tiara. For as the earth bursts with spring wildflowers and as a garden cascades with blooms, so the master God brings righteousness into bloom and puts praise on display before the nations. And so receive this, the promise of Advent, that we have expected the worst, but God has extended to us his best. God with us, Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's respond. Lord, you are Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, when we expected the worst, when we deserved the worst, you have extended to us your best in Jesus. And so, Lord, would you give us the strength and the courage to walk in full trust that you are Emmanuel, God with us, and that you are making a way through the rubble, not based on our own ingenuity and our own power, but based on your goodness. You are giving us everything that we need. You are making a way even now. So we cling tightly to that promise, and we eternally cling to the promise that you are Emmanuel. God with us. Help us to live like it. And may we experience the joy, the gift of Advent. Lord, hear our prayer in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, let's end in celebration with a song of joy. May you go from this place full of the joy of the Lord, not based on circumstances, but based on the eternal, consistent character of God who when we deserve the best or the worst, extended to us his best. God with us, Jesus. Now go in action 
and go in peace.